0: I always wanted to write about my own experiences in my life, but the problem was I couldn't be honest about what was going on with me because I always had a lot of inner secrets, you know? Like I would love to have written about my marriage, but I couldn't write about my marriage because I had like no one knew what was going on. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word
1: to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Today, on this very special episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I talk to a woman who is a client of ours at Find Your Voice, one of my very favorite writers, and also one of the most badass women I know, Laura McCowan. If you don't know Laura, she is one of the foremost voices in the modern recovery movement, having helped thousands of people reframe addiction and transform their lives through her writing, teaching, and speaking. Laura writes an award winning blog hosted the iTunes Top 100 Home Podcast, and Spiritualish, a show that provided an irreverent take on self-development and spirituality. She's been featured in WebMD, New York Post, Huffington Post, The Today Show, and more. It's a gift and an honor to have her on the show, but the reason I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation is that Laura is a woman who has transformed her life with the practice of writing. She's not only found healing and recovery, she's made a full time living for herself as an author and teacher. And she's written a book that's a beautiful piece of work and is transforming the lives of others. In today's episode, we talk candidly about the things that keep all of us from becoming the highest and best versions of ourselves. And we talk about how to find a path to the life we always knew was possible. We talk about publishing, we talk about journaling, we talk about addiction. We talk about the big industry of alcohol, and of course, we talk about her new book titled We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. So buckle up and get ready for this fun, honest, and undeniably vulnerable conversation with Laura McCowan. Hello, hello, Laura. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm so excited to do this interview with you. I feel like you have been a client of Find Your Voice, so I've gotten to know you a little bit that way, and I'm also a massive fan <laughs> of your work. Thank and, you. And I just I feel like you have so much to share with our audience. So I'm just really grateful that you're here and willing to do this, and can't wait to dive right in. I know it's fun, especially since we worked on my book together. I know. And- It's just out now, and yeah, this is good. So much to talk about. Well, I want to start in the same place we always start with these interviews, which is, I'm curious, what does find your voice mean to you?
0: Mm. Well, there's like the writing voice, you know, is one thing. But just finding your voice, I think there is a thing or a way of being in the world or a message that we each uniquely have. and something to say that no one else can really say, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not necessarily a unique story, but it's a unique way of sharing ourself with the world. So I would say it's something like that. It's like finding what that frequency is that you have.
1: Yeah. That's a great way to say it. Do you see any connection between the writing voice and the the other thing you're talking about the finding the way of being in the world is there is there a link between those two things for you I think so for
0: sure yeah I think my voice well okay I think my writing voice is the best when it most resembles the the other voice right like it like when the the thing I have to say comes through and it's not necessarily with words it's more like a transmission you know like the the purest form of my voice comes through in the writing Um, but that man that took like the whole book to get there (laughs) I didn't feel like I had that until the end yeah like I feel like it was easy for me to find in different types in different like essay writing or blog writing or something like that but with the book it took so much longer
1: it's true. It's, I have found the same thing with books I've written and then also other clients I've worked with. There's something about a book because it's just so much content that you have to find right. that common thread and common voice that holds the whole thing to, together in some kind of cohesive way so that it's not just a bunch of short stories thrown together. But there's also something so transformative about the process of putting your story on paper and finding that one thread that I've seen it have a a huge impact on not just the book and the writing, but also outside of that, helping people to really show up as themselves in the
0: world. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with that.
1: Well, the work you're doing in the world with your writing and the various podcasts you've been a part of and the online workshops you teach and the in-person workshops you teach is so important. And I'm really drawn to it because it's, it shares in the the same ethos, at least to what I care about. Yeah. But I'd love to hear you got here in a different, similar, but different way than I did. So I'd love to hear like What's the backstory? What brought to, you here? How did I yeah. land in this yeah. weird, strange <laughs> land?
0: Yeah, I definitely took a different path. I mean, I was in marketing and advertising for 15 years as like a, you know, corporate person. It was sort of a career. Like I, I had definitely have always been a huge reader. I've always made sense of the world and myself and my problems, whatever they were through words and reading. Like I always sought answers in books and in writing and poetry and things like that. And I had like these sort of dreams of being an author, but they seemed so ridiculously far out there and not, there was just no way that was going to be my path. I just didn't see a way to that. Mm. I don't know. I don't know why it just felt like, well, that's something other people do like creative people <laughs> or artsy people. You know, I just never saw myself as that. It, yeah. It seems like a some other planet, where I just wasn't invited to that or didn't know how to get there. Hmm. And then, um, I mean, the, the short story is I had to get sober in like 2012, 2013. And up until that point, I had had like several blogs. I would post a couple of things and then it would just, you know, they'd collect us basically. And I always wanted to write about my own experiences in my life. But the problem was I couldn't be honest about what was going on with me because I always had a lot of inner secrets you know like i would love to have written about my marriage but i couldn't write about my marriage because i had like no one knew what was going on you know inside me wanted to write about being a mom i just i didn't really know how to be honest in my writing or i felt like i couldn't be i also was like just busy with my life and you know primarily like Drinking and recovering from drinking, and I was just like, say, I was really busy, you know. So it always seemed to fall by the wayside, like whatever blog writing, writing this idea that I might write a book someday or something like that. But it really started to wear on me, like in my mid thirties and sort of late thirties. Like, okay, so that that's never going to happen now because how do you even make that jump, you know? At this point, where does one even start? And I would read books, like especially memoirs by other women, and it would just like burn me so badly to Hmm. feel like I didn't know that I could do that, but I wanted to so badly. And to read other women's words and their stories was just like, ugh. But so I went to get sober and that experience was so difficult and so, so difficult. And it, it gave me something to write about. For whatever reason, I just started writing about it and any anything from you know starting a new Instagram account and writing posts there where i was just really honest about what was going on and you know the blog that i started which is now just like my normal website blog but it started as a thing called i fly at night and it just gave me a story to tell you know before i even mm-hmm. really got sober i just had so much to say about it and so much that i needed to process and writing helped me figure out what was going on, and I started writing in earnest really then, so like 2013, and I got sober in 2014, and and I um, started a podcast in 2015 called Home, and that going to be surprisingly big, and and that too helped the writing in a way because it was like I figured out how to talk about my story, right? So yeah, all these ways that we sort of learn our story through conversation uh, whether it's writing or actually talking or whatever it all played a part and then so I I had been writing pretty regularly for a couple years and doing this podcast for a couple of years and I also had become a yoga teacher way back in like 2009 although I never taught regularly I had a very deep interest in it and in 2016, it finally reached this tipping point where I kind of had two jobs. Like I wasn't getting paid to do any of the writing or the podcasting or anything, but it was taking up a significant amount of time. And I loved doing it. Just, I knew I would leave my career. I knew that would happen. I had no idea how, and that's a whole other story, but finally reached a point where I quit and I left my career and I kind of had 50%, 50%, maybe like a 30% plan of what I would do. <laughs> and I had a short window, I mean, a very short window, when I would be okay not making any money. I figured if I stay sober and if I stay sober, I'm going to figure it out, you know? Yeah. And I started teaching yoga workshops, um, you know, like three, four hour workshops. I then took like one of those workshops and turned it into an online class called The Bigger Yes. And that was really successful, and so I now have, I think, five online classes that I teach. You know, either either in personal development or sobriety or writing. You know, I never really planned to do that, but it was a perfect fit for me because I already had a marketing degree. I already had, um, like, I knew how to do all the digital stuff really easily, and I love teaching. Yeah. So then I started writing my book. In two thousand I guess 14, 15 in earnest. Um I started and in many different drafts and iterations and then I sold uh, you know, put together a proposal and all that. Sold the book at the end of two thousand eighteen. Oh
1: wow. You started writing in two thousand fourteen and then sold the book in two thousand eighteen.
0: Yeah, but I mean it, it really like Ali, I had no idea how to write a book. <laughs> like
1: no clue. Well, here's why I feel like it's important to just pause on that point because mm-hmm. I want people who are listening to hear that this is not something that happens overnight. Like, I no. feel like oftentimes writers come to me and they have a dream of writing a memoir and they're thinking like, you know, I'm, my goal for myself is to have this done in six months. Right. And, and my first book took me also
0: three and a half years to write. So similar yeah. timeline. Yeah. And I I don't hear many stories that are different than that. You know, I don't. Same. So I think. When I first heard that, I remember interviewing Sarah Heppel for my podcast way back when, and she's like, yeah, I thought I would have it done in like a year. And she's like, it took me four <laughs> years. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to have mine done in a year and I'll publish it like the year after. It was like, no, it took me exactly that long, you know? Yeah. So I had to, I had to I think, live more into what I was <laughs> writing about to be able to write about it properly. Definitely. Yeah. And so that's, you know, the, the condensed version. So I do a little, I write, I, I mean, ideally my sort of dream life is to be able to write books and speak, you know, mm. um, around the world. I love teaching too and I'll do that as long as I can or need to, but yeah, it's a, it's a whole different life.
1: I think it's a great, a great story for our listeners to hear because so many people, some people who listen here are, not necessarily looking to be published writers. They're just wanting to be inspired to write more regularly Mm. for a lot of the same reasons that probably drew you into the writing process in the beginning and me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many of us, which is like, I've got this thing going on in my life that I'm trying to figure out. And so writing feels like a way that I can kind of start to chip away at the mask and start to get to the truth of what's really going on here.
0: Totally. But
1: then also hearing the evolution of, you know, for people who get to the point where they're like, I would really like to publish someday. A lot of authors make this giant leap to like, okay, how can I make a full-time living from my writing? And I always try to convince people that's not really the first question to be asking. The, the questions are like, how do I find time and space to actually get my writing done? And how do I create right. something that's going to, you know, have a meaningful impact on the world? And then how do I make a living from it? does come later, but comes in small stages and sometimes comes through like, you know, like you teaching a a yoga workshop is, it's a move in the direction, but it's not directly making money from the words that you've written down on a piece of paper. So,
0: no, I mean, I, I tell people too, like I wrote hundreds of blog posts, like no one was paying me to do that. I loved doing Mm -hmm. it and it helped me build a platform, you know, but that ultimately did contribute, I'm sure to selling my book. But you have to really love it, yeah. Yeah, you know. Yes. So there's all there's all kinds of reasons to write. I just can't imagine if I put the pressure on my writing to earn me a living or allow me to support myself and my daughter. I think I it would become something very different.
1: Yeah. You brought up platform, and I want to talk about that for a quick second. Mm -hmm. So you have. Built a really incredible platform for yourself. You've got a lot of people who are listening and paying attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I was one of those people who listened to the home podcast. I was really intrigued and drawn mm-hmm. and and loved what you and Holly did there. Also, you just are wrapping up a book tour mm-hmm. for your book that came out. Mm-hmm. And I came and saw you in LA yeah. and you had the bookstore packed out to, to book the book soup,
0: which is the weirdest format for a book bookstore event really? I've ever seen. So fascinating. <laughs> what a cool bookstore and such a strange like event space that was funny just as a it, note yeah, the LA folks <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it was standing room only in the back that's for sure yeah but i would love to hear you talk about because i think i, I kind of know where you might go with this answer but i'd love to hear you talk about like what has it been like for you to grow your platform or build a platform because that's advice that so many people get when they tell someone that they want to write a book yeah so and you do have a marketing background so it was was this like an intentional thing that you were like, I'm going to go out and get, you know, followers, 20,000 Instagram followers. Yeah. <laughs> no. Or
0: or how did that happen? Nope, never. It was like, I am, I will always tell anyone just be who you are. Hmm. That's going to be the way that you build a following of any number. At least a sustainable following, a real following is to be who you are. And it sounds like sort of trite and maybe overly simplistic, but that's the truth, right? It's like, you have something to say, was what we started out at the very beginning talking about. Like, you have something to say, no one is you, and yes, there is some strategy involved in there. Like, I, you know, try to publish, uh, you know, a few times a week. And I figured out the right times to post something on Instagram and stuff like that. Like I think all those learning, all those tidbits helps you establish some sort of rhythm, but nothing, nothing is more important than being who you are. So sharing your life a little bit, sharing your experience, acting as if you have something to teach people, right? And it doesn't have to be like this prescriptive teaching voice. It's like you can teach people something just by sharing your experience. You can teach people something just sharing a book that you've read and what you loved about it. You could teach people something by sharing a little snapshot of your life. There are all kinds of people out there. You want your platform to be the people who are actually going to read your book, which means that they're actually going to be interested in the work that you do. So. I think in that sense the best way to be, you know, on online is to be who you are. There are there are things about platform that are why, you know, just so grossly misunderstood, like Instagram followers and Facebook followers and all that. They count for a decent amount, but it's you know, there are other pieces that are actually more beneficial to you, like building an email list. And mm-hmm. For fiction writers, too, like, it just matters so much less, like, yeah. at all, if at all. That's really true. You know, so I, and I also tell people, like, even, uh, you don't have to do it. Like, you just don't. And I've seen lots of people sell books. Some people just hate social media. It's forced. They hate being on there. It shows in what they post. They don't want to do it. And so sure. they just commit to doing a minimal amount, you know, of what they need to do to sort of check the box. And that's totally fine. For me, it's something that I actually really like doing. I'm not good at doing things I don't like. So <laughs> I, I, it exercises my writing muscle actually a little bit to do little Instagram posts. You know, I like yeah. I like that. I like the community aspect of it. I like hearing from people and yeah, but no, I never set out like, I'm going to build a community of X number of people. Yeah. Uh, I never did that. One of the things that was so
1: compelling to me about the home podcast is when I was telling a friend about it after I started listening, I was like, it, it literally feels like you're eavesdropping on a phone call between <laughs> I know. these two, two girls. All the time. You know, like it, it was just, I think the, the lack of, and I mean, this as the highest compliment, but the lack of production. Mm. Like it wasn't highly edited. It wasn't like you didn't go into it going like, well, this is the objective of the episode today and sort of like take us on a straight, linear journey to get there. It
0: was a conversation. Literally, we would be like, what generally do we want to talk about? And let's just (laughs) press record. Some people hated that, though. You know, it's different for everybody. Like I loved listening to Joe Rogan. It's his podcasts are three hours long. And the reason I love them, and I think the reason why he's so wildly successful, is because he does not have an agenda. He brings people on who he's interested in talking to, and you literally sit there and hear them have a conversation for three hours. Hmm. It shouldn't That's work. It, but hmm. but it, you can but it feel does. the passion and the passion. You can yeah, just feel people connecting in a mm-hmm. real way. We don't yeah. get that anymore. You know, yeah. we don't get that very often.
1: That's true. That's a great transition into this next question I have for you because, you know, so much of what you're talking about is sobriety from alcohol. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a big piece of the audience that are that are drawn to hear you talk about that and maybe share in a similar experience to that. But I personally have been so drawn to your writing and to your work. And, and I know so many other people who have who don't share that exact same experience. So I'm yeah. curious to hear from you, what is it that that is connecting us to what you're talking about? What Mm. makes it feel so uniquely human?
0: Oh, I think it's just pain. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, we all go through painful things, you know, painful parts of our life, losses, pain of all kinds. And it's universal. Like, you you know, that is part of the human experience. And I think I write from that place of having been an, extraordinary pain and making it through, you know, Mm -hmm. and that isn't my story just happened to be around addiction, but there, that's just what my story is. You know, the, the concepts are the same. The lessons are the same. The ideas are the same. The feelings are the same. The, the, um, experience of being in that place is the same. I hear that all the time, you know, I've never had an alcohol problem. I but I lost a son or I've went through a divorce or I, you know, changed my sexual identity or changed my orientation at fifty years old and or whatever it is, you know, like going through something profoundly difficult
1: Hmm.
0: I think is what is the connective thing.
1: You know, when I read first read your work i read it before it came out cuz i was helping with some of the editing
0: mm-hmm.
1: one of the things that happened for me was it really started to change the way i wanted to orient my relationship around alcohol even though i don't have a quote problem with alcohol right <laughs> so but i i just did start to notice how this thing has become the center point of every social gathering yeah. that i go to and yep. has become uh, like, you know, I would go through a week and think there hasn't been a single night this week that I've not had something to drink. And usually right. it's just a glass of wine, but I just started to think about it a little bit differently and think like, am I really choosing this or. Right. Am I just falling into some. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it just the pattern that's here? And so I would find myself in certain circumstances being like, I actually don't know if I even want. A glass of wine, but it's being offered to me and so I'm taking it. I know. I'd love to hear you talk about what you what you think about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think alcohol is this fantastic like uh sort of anomaly in our culture where it's a literal drug. Like if alcohol came out today, it would be banned. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm not even joking. Yeah, it would be an article just came out. In, I think from the BBC a couple weeks ago that said that, and study upon study is now coming out to say that there's no safe amount of alcohol to drink. This whole moderation thing is complete bullshit. But we don't see any of those, you know, studies in the mainstream media because there's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar sure. industry. So it's this really powerful, dangerous drug but we don't think of it like that at all. I mean, it's basically benign to us. You know, even my daughters like thinks that diet coke and and smoking cigarettes is like evil, but she doesn't see alcohol as that evil. You know, she or, evil's the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like she sure, doesn't yeah. see it as dangerous. She it's only in conversations where I've had to really like educate her as a 10-year-old because what she observes largely is that adults drink alcohol. No big deal. Sure. So, and it's everywhere you go. We use it for every, it's at every celebration, every funeral, every, you know, birth of our kids, everywhere, Uh, every meal. um, We put it in beautiful bottles. It's like the most, we love alcohol. We love it. And, um, And we don't largely think of it as a drug. We think of it as this like beautiful accessory to living a, a light, a good life. Right. Yeah. Punctuating yeah. our like moments of connection and all that.
1: To the point where if you don't accept a drink, you're either sober or pregnant.
0: Right. <laughs> like- well, I, it's like the only drug that you have to explain not using, which is so yeah. weird. Right. No yeah, one would ever weird. say, why aren't you smoking tonight or why aren't you doing a line of Coke tonight at dinner? It's like, or we even, even weed, which is, absolutely objectively more, you know, benign than, than alcohol. No one would be like, where's your joint? You know, what's the deal? (laughs) It's just fascinating. And there's a ton of history there as to how we got here. But, um, yeah, I, this was a, a big reason why when I went to get sober, I was so angry because I saw like, this isn't just Laura has a problem, right? Mm. This is like a massive thing that we are all, we're all so duped about. Yeah. We're so duped about it. And how, what the hell happened? Like my mom friends were regularly over drinking, like, We were promoting each other over drinking in the middle of the day, and no one is like, "This is what we deserve." And meanwhile, everyone's on anti-anxiety medication. Everyone is is like, wrung out, exhausted, not sleeping. You know, having trouble in their relationships, and we're not connecting the dots back to alcohol in any way. So, yeah, it's this it's this fascinating phenomenon um, in our culture and it wasn't until I got sober that I know that I started to really see it this way. Um, just that it's everywhere. I mean, I grew up in a family where everyone drank, like it was just, I just assumed that's what I would do and no big deal. And, um, I I didn't think of it as anything. And then Mm. you start to like learn more and actually see, I mean, my inbox hundreds of emails every week from women like our age you know that are that have found themselves in trouble with drinking and it didn't start out that way and a lot of them aren't even drinking like you know what would qualify a like they would never qualify as an alcoholic sure they're just um It has caused – there's a direct link between anxiety and alcohol, which is massive. Anxiety disorders are the number one, like, mental health issue by far among women. It destroys your sleep. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the funny thing is we go to, like, these crazy great lengths to, you know, eat the cleanest food and remove all these (laughs) toxins from our body and do yoga and, you know, and – be so self-aware and meditate and read all these self-help books. And yet, you know, we still ingest like basically ethanol. It's, just, it's kind of funny and, and in a not funny way, but
1: yeah. So that's actually, <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection before, but that's actually
0: really ironic. It's really, really crazy. If you look at the, at the actual reality of what damage alcohol does, I was listening to this, this clinical psychologist who did his PhD in Drugs, like in studying drugs and, and alcohol, and he, his research proved that it is by far the most dangerous drug, and um, like by far, and causes more deaths than all the other drugs combined. And you know, it, but we just don't see it that way. It's so, so interesting. So anyway, you know, not to be on a soapbox, but I just think it's fascinating. Like because I never heard any of this. No one was ever, like, no one ever talked about not drinking unless it was like, oh God they have a problem. You know, someone has a problem, they have to stop. It was just this yeah. foregone conclusion that you were going to drink and everything we did revolved, like you said, it's just part of every social thing. Um, so yeah. Yeah. There, there's a
1: chapter in the book where you talk about how, um, the, the people will ask the question, like, am I an addict? Mm-hmm. Do I have an alcohol problem with alcohol? And were you, you spend the whole chapter really talking about why that's not even the right question
0: that. yeah yeah maybe talk a little well, bit who about wants that to some? call themselves an alcoholic like <laughs> no one has even a positive like a neutral you know um image of an alcoholic it's always pretty ugly you know so and it's not um you don't have to qualify as an alcoholic for alcohol to be really really messing with your life in a significant way you know so yeah. I mean, the, I don't call myself an alcoholic and I mean, I could qualify like every single question on that, that quiz I would be answering yes to, but I don't call myself that because it's like, it just feels like this sort of punitive thing. It, I mean, the question I hope I want people to ask. So we usually say like, is this bad enough that I have to change? Is my drinking bad enough? Yeah. So many yeah. emails that say that. Like this is what it looks like. And it, it it could be any behavior, right? Is this bad enough that I have to change? It's like, well, what if we flipped the question and said, is this good enough for you to stay the same? Like, is your life good enough? Is this is what it looks like now good enough for you to stay the same? And an even better question is, are you free? Are you free with this thing? Does it own you in some way? You get a much different answer, you know. That's so
1: good. Such an important question for all of us to be asking ourselves about anything. about anything. It was the question I started asking myself about alcohol, even though I don't—I would not classify as
0: the traditional addict, right? Like when when you go into a party, like you said, do are you free? Like is this owning you somehow? Like do you feel like you have to say yes because you don't want to deal with what it means to say no, or or yeah. even are you uncomfortable not having a glass of wine? You know, like that's yeah, that's a behavior or something that owns you. You know, it's worth looking at.
1: So great. I wish we could talk about that all day, but I do want to transition uh-huh. to talking a little bit about your book because I want to make sure that we have time for that. Your book is out now. It's called We Are the Luckiest. It's, Laura, it's so beautifully written. You know, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times being out on tour, but it's so beautifully written. You. It's an incredible story that has so much Thank depth you. and humanity to it. Everybody who is listening should go get a copy
0: of it if you haven't already. Tell us a little bit
1: about the title,
0: Yeah, so, I mean, when I had to get sober, I thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen to me, like a lot of people do, and I thought it was the end of everything, you know, my social life and my work life and my dating life and all of that, and I would say, like, I just, people who can drink normally are just so lucky, you know, like, I just wish this wasn't my thing, Mm -hmm. and I realized pretty early on that I was the lucky one. Like, I could feel my feelings, (laughs) as hard as they were. yeah I could I was able to feel them. I wasn't cutting myself off at the knees all the time, every night cutting off my potential for what I could be. I didn't have to wallow in this horrific shame all the time. I was I could show my daughter mm. a different life and I could have relationships that were real and based on something solid. And I realized it was like, no, we are the lucky ones. Those of us that get this call, painful as it is, to wake up are are lucky. So that's where it came from. Beautiful. You wrote in the book about, you
1: wrote very honestly about your journey to recovery. And you told a lot of hard stories. Also, you know, had mentioned to me that the point of the book wasn't to go dig up all these ugly past stories and, and, you know, yeah. tell everything about what it was like to be in that season of your life. But I'm curious how you decided what to share with a reader and what to leave out. Mm.
0: Yeah, I did not realize, and I'm sure, you know, you have experienced this too, like you leave out almost everything. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. you know, picked the story That would best illustrate the point I was trying to make in that chapter or in that section whatever you know like if I'm talking about the shame of being a mom who who drank what is the best story I have to tell about that Mm -hmm. and the best meaning the purest story you know the the one that really gets at the heart of it not the easiest one if I want to tell a story about what happened in my marriage in one conversation, you know, what's the conversation that best illustrates that? So that takes a lot of digging. It wasn't often what I thought I would be telling or sharing. Yeah.
1: And so much of what you write down when you're in, when you first enter into the writing process and you're just trying to process what's going on with you. So much of what gets written down in that season, I found at least doesn't end up in the book.
0: Mm -mm. No, it's like digging and you're like, well, I'll start here. And that's a story that's a top of mind. Oh no, the the real story is like four layers deeper. Yeah, <laughs> And you turn up memories too, you yes. know, as you write.
1: Another question that I get all the time from our writers, and I think you'd be a great person to answer this, is I know that involved in your story are, it's not just you, it's also your daughter and you have an ex-husband and you have men who you are in relationship with with over the course of the time that you're telling this story and plenty of other people, your parents yeah. and whomever else. Writers are always... How did I deal yeah, with them? You, well, and just how did you decide <laughs> how to tell the story and what to,
0: you yeah. know, how to protect
1: these people or do they need protecting? Or and I know.
0: It's the hardest part, right? It is. For people to get their heads around. And um, so I wrote the story as if no one would read it first mm. because I could not... I I kept getting tripped up on that, like thinking of when they have the published book in their hands, what's going to happen. It's like there's a thousand steps before that ever happens. Yeah. And I don't think people really realize that, right? Like you have literally a team of editors, you're going to see this thing 30 times. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to have many chances to back out, out of it. But so I wrote the story as if no one would read it. And then um, I just really, I made sure that I told the story from my perspective, that I wasn't telling anyone else's story, Yeah. So. So, you know, and then I made it very clear where it was my view. Like, mm-hmm. this is how I remember it. And it may have been different for them or something like that. I think I even said that, like, t- about my husband, like. I don't know what that conversation meant to him, but this is what it meant to me type of thing. Yeah. And then I just tried to be as gracious as possible, but without, you know, without skirting the truth. And there does come a point where you just kind of have to jump off the cliff, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I had, I gave people the option to read the pages, anybody that was in it when it was in final draft, like when it was one more step and the thing was going to be sent to the printer, I let them read it. And like for my mom example, who is talked about a lot in the book, I told her over the phone before she read it, these are the scenes I talked about. This is what I said, you know, this is where it's going. And it was still really hard for her to read it. Like she had a pretty strong reaction, but now it's okay. It's actually opened up some good conversations for us. So it's not all easy. Like it's not going to be easy. And with my dad, I told him not to read it. Like I just said, just don't. Wow. And nobody, it doesn't occur to anyone that they could do that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another author, a memoirist, actually said that that's what she did with her family for her second book. And I was like,
1: okay, that's what I'm doing. I have a friend whose wife has decided to do the same thing, not to read books that he wrote before she knew him because she's just like, it doesn't matter. And, you know, just kind of, I would rather not know.
0: (laughs) Right. And we can do that. I mean, they Mm might, my dad might or he may or may not have listened. People may or may not listen, but you know, if if they don't, it's on them at that point. Like you told them. Yeah. So sure. and with my, for example, my ex-husband, yeah. I said long beforehand, I'm gonna write this book. Are you are you okay with it? And he was like, Yeah, I mean, I guess so, you know. And I but I was very deliberate and very careful about yeah. how I presented people. Makes sense. it's, it's a it's great advice. You give
1: great advice. What has been the most surprising or exciting part of the response to the book? Because I know there's this big build up to like releasing this vulnerable story into the world, and you're kind of like, I hope people love this. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I hope no like? one hates. Yeah. It. What has been like the most exciting part of that or surprising part of it?
0: I don't know. It's been so because for so long, it's just this thing that lives with you. You know. Yeah. And to see people at events actually holding the book and have it highlighted and walk up to me and tell me which parts meant something to them has been just incredible. And it also feels like such a relief. Like I didn't expect it to feel like such a relief that yeah. it's just not mine anymore. It's like everyone owns it, you know, and it's, it's going to be what each individual reader needs it to be. Mm. It's just not mine anymore. I love that. That's really great.
1: Laura, it's so wonderful to chat with you. I have one last question for you, which is the last question we always ask to wrap up. And it feels like a massive question, but I'm going to give it a little bit of a caveat.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um,
1: The reason I ask this question is because I really believe words have incredible transformative power to change our own personal lives and to change our communities and to change the world. So I'm curious if you had to boil down into a few words or a couple sentences what you hope your legacy will be? What do you hope people will say about you after you're not here anymore? What, what words mm. might you use to describe that?
0: I, I'm glad because I've already thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to change the story, like to heal the legacy of women that came before me and after mm. me. Uh, There's a lot of pain and a lot of shame in those stories. And I think that's what I want to be, the person that helps them heal the legacy of my own story and and thereby helps them do the same for themselves. I love that. It's beautiful. And I also really
1: feel, think, believe that you're already doing that. You you. have exhibited such bravery in so many different ways. and, And those of us who are following along are learning from your courage. So thank you for being so vulnerable with us.
0: Thank you. Likewise. And thank
1: you so much for being here today. We really, really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.